Getting graded is, for most people, the least fun part of school. But what if I told you that grades didn't exist until about 200 years ago? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. And in today's episode, I want to talk to you about a subject that is near and dear, well, maybe not dear, to my heart, uh, educational assessment. No, wait, 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 don't, don't stop the episode. Now, I understand that some of you who have been out of high school or college for some time uh, may now be having some post-traumatic stress flashbacks, because grades are the thing that no one likes. Even if you're a good student, no one, except for a very few special people, actually enjoy submitting themselves for assessment by a teacher. And having taught college for over a decade now, I can tell you that the one part of the job that every professor and teacher dislikes is grading. You sometimes try to make creative or interesting assignments to make it less painful to grade, but at the end of the day, grading, or if you're outside North America, marking, is still generally a chore. Which raises the question, why do we do it? And that is really the question that I want to tackle in today's episode, because the answer might not be quite as readily apparent as you think. You see, grading, in the sense of assigning a specific, sometimes subjective, letter or number or percentage to a student's work as a way of assessing their competency and skill at performing a pedagogical task for determining whether or not a student passes a course, is actually a relatively new approach to educational assessment. It's only about two centuries old. To begin with, we need to deconstruct for a moment what the idea of education is and what its function is in society. Today, educational systems exist to provide certification, as I said a second ago, of competency or skill. If you want a particular job, whether that be as a scientist or an elementary school teacher or an electrician or an accountant, the basic purpose of a degree or certificate is to say that you have had the appropriate training to perform said job. And in some ways, this has always been the purpose of education. Note also that we think of education in two different ways. There's the component of education which is given to writing, speaking, thinking, communicating, and there is the hands-on practical mode for technical work like operating a forklift or doing engine repair. Let's look at medieval Europe as a starting example, and for the rest of this episode I'm actually going to focus on Western models leading up to the American system. Uh, to talk about, for example, the Chinese Imperial Civil Service Examination System, which is probably the most significant evaluation system outside of the West and dates to the Han Dynasty in the 2nd century BCE, would double the length of this episode. Anyway, broadly construed, there were two main education systems at work in Europe in the High and Late Middle Ages. On the one hand, you had the system of education, largely, though not exclusively, given to members of the elite, the landowning warrior aristocracy, members of clergy, and eventually children of the urban mercantile classes, first within the bounds of schools attached to cathedrals and monasteries, and then later, starting in the 12th century, at universities. Now, we'll save the story of how universities came into existence for another episode, but for now, know that the initial basic education that most medieval students at these institutions tended to receive uh, centered around a specific ordered curriculum that started with the three subjects of the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and dialectical logic, followed by the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. 
study of other subjects like physical sciences, medicine, theology, philosophy, they all built on this basic foundation. The other system broadly at work was a kind of on-the-job training in trades by artisans and craftsmen that happened through an emerging guild system. In this system, in your late childhood or preteen years, you would enter into an apprenticeship with a master of your specific trade. After living and working with that master for a number of years, learning the trade, you would be allowed to sell your services as a day laborer or journeyman, uh, which comes from the French journée, meaning day. It's also where we get the word journey, uh, a day's travel. If you eventually saved up enough money to open up your own business, you could petition the guild overseeing your trade in whatever town you lived in to allow you to be granted the title of magister, or master. Requirements could vary from trade to trade and from town to town, but in some trades, admission to the guild eventually might require you to show your competency by producing a masterpiece. The important thing to note about these two systems is that they were quite personal forms of education. Within the cathedral and monastery schools, and within the universities, progression within the trivium and quadrivium was done on an individual basis, and you as a student were constantly being assessed by your tutor to determine whether or not you were ready to proceed to the next subject. An advancement was not guaranteed. If you failed to master the subject matter to the tutor's satisfaction, your progress could be slowed. At the university level, completion of your education and conferral of a degree was marked by having to sit for an examination before a panel. If you answered the examiner's questions with sufficient and appropriate answers, and if you had studied for the appropriate amount of time, you passed and received the degree. I should note, though, that the majority of medieval university students did not actually graduate and obtain a degree, as the degree was really only necessary if you wanted to go on to be licensed to teach or eventually practice a certain set of professions. Universities were a place that you went to for an education, but the degree itself didn't carry the same weight that a university degree does in our society here in 2019. Likewise, within the guilds, passage from apprentice to journeyman or from journeyman to master was based on your subjective evaluation by the masters of the guild who had a vested stake in your training. Many people did not pass on from journeyman to master. These methods of personal, admittedly subjective, assessment were, of course, not without their drawbacks. The guild apprenticeship system was by its nature exclusionary and self-selecting. Within the university system, a recurring problem throughout the later medieval and early modern eras was that degrees would be conferred on students who manifestly had not demonstrated competence, but passed because, say, they came from a well-connected and powerful family, or the examiners were very lax. Despite these flaws, though, both of these systems of assessment and evaluation continued well into the modern era. From this point forward, I should note, I'm going to be talking just about the school assessment and we'll leave the vocational job assessment uh, of the guild system aside for another day. Which brings us to the 18th century. In the intervening centuries, written examinations were deployed at various times by European and American universities for things like admission and degree conferral, or certain subjects like the Cambridge Mathematical Tripos exams. In 1785, the president of Yale University, Ezra Stiles, remarking upon his examinations of 58 senior students, noted that this class held, quote, 20 optimi, uh, the Latin word for best, 16 second optimi, 12 inferiores, or inferior students, 
and ten peyores, or worst students, end quote. Uh, Stiles' observation is sometimes heralded as the first use of a grading system in America, though it was based on similar gradations already in use in Europe. By the first decade of the 19th century, Yale was using a four-point system for evaluating students. To pass a course, you had to have a two or above. But the general tendency of universities in this period was to, much as Stiles had done, divide students into broad categories from best to worst. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that grading systems in America began to be deployed on a wide scale. Here, much of the credit goes to the educational reform efforts of Horace Mann, who became secretary of the Massachusetts Board of Education in 1837. Mann is widely recognized as a major advocate for the system of public education that was emerging in both Europe and America in this period. In particular, Mann was influenced by the educational methodologies of the German Kingdom of Prussia. One of the common approaches to education in the United States and Britain at the time was to internally rank students in a class against each other, a method known as the monitorial or sometimes Lancasterian system after its developer, the English Quaker Joseph Lancaster. In the early 19th century, students were often grouped together in a single class regardless of age. The ranking of students in the Lancasterian system was an integral part of its pedagogy because the higher-ranked advanced, often older students, would become monitors who oversaw other students, uh, thus permitting larger class sizes and cheaper education. The position of monitoring was constantly in flux, and students were perpetually pitted against one another competitively in public recitations and exams. Mann and other educational reformers of the period saw the perpetual competition between students as problematic, and instead advocated following an adaptation of the Prussian system, which divided students into grades based on written rather than oral exams and distributed private report cards on a monthly basis, as opposed to the public ranking of the Lancasterian system. Nevertheless, Mann's push for new methods of educational assessment took several decades to find full traction. By the 1860s and 70s, promotion of students in both grammar schools and universities was increasingly done based on a wide variety of systems, including percentages, number scales, and sometimes letter grades with very little standardization in terms of what the actual assigned grade meant. A 4 at one university might mean a 90% at another, and a grade of 20 at a third. Thus, in the second half of the 19th century, there's an increasing push towards standardization and mathematical evaluation of student performance, which coincided with both the Industrial Revolution's creation of a larger clerical and managerial class, and with a widespread push in Europe and America for systems of compulsory, universal public education. As teachers were forced to cope with larger class sizes and a greater volume of students, the personal evaluation for promotion approach became less and less feasible, and so the classroom began to reflect, in a very real way, the industrial environment. But it was a piecemeal system. Uh, the A to F grading system, as is commonly used in the United States today, seems to have come into use only at the very end of the 19th century, with Mount Holyoke College claiming to have originated the correlation between an A as excellent work in the 95 to 100th percentile, uh, B equaling 85 to 94 percent, C beginning at 76 percent, D exactly at 75, and E being everything below 75 percent. The system was eventually rejiggered to include an F below E, uh, and the values were accordingly adjusted. 
At some point in the early 20th century, the E was eventually dropped, but without any clear reasoning why that I've been able to find. Uh, some authors suggest that it was to avoid confusion with students who might think that an F stood for failing, and therefore an E stands for excellent. However, these letter grades with their attached values did not come into universal common usage until World War II. As late as 1971, only 80% of schools in the United States used the A to F system, and even then, some upper-level institutions, such as the Ivy League universities, maintained their own grading systems until the second half of the 20th century. So why the slow delay in standardization? Well, in part, it's because education was still primarily a state rather than a federal function. A Department of Education was created during the Reconstruction Era in 1867, but it was demoted to an office within the Department of Interior the following year. It was then shuffled to the Federal Security Agency in 1939 and became a joint cabinet office along with Health and Welfare in 1953. It was only in 1979, during the Carter administration, that education was split off into its own discrete cabinet-level department. Moreover, not all educators in the late 19th and early 20th century were in favor of using grades as a means of assessing student progress. Certainly, it did make student progress eminently quantifiable. You had but to look at the numbers to see how students were doing, and to divide them up into nice neat boxes of various levels of achievement. The superintendent of Chicago schools, though, in 1881, forbade the use of exams to promote students by grade, and said it could only be done by personal teacher recommendation. Protesters against the use of exam percentages to advance students, like the superintendent in Chicago, felt that they placed too much priority on the material of exams themselves, rather than on student capabilities. Grades, they claimed, reduced students to a number, or a letter, and they promoted teaching to and cramming for exams, rather than the mastery of content. Advocates in favor of testing and grading metrics, on the other hand, pointed out that they offered a more objective standard by which students could be measured, rather than the subjective evaluation of a teacher or a principal. Protests against grading, however, were largely for naught. The use of standardized testing and grading offered too many administrative advantages, both within educational institutions and in the post-education environment. With the attachment of a four-point scale to letter grades in the first half of the 20th century, grade point averages came into widespread use as a way of aggregating a student's overall performance across classes. Anticipating this use of exams and grading as a way of evaluating students, Isidore Finkelstein wrote in his 1913 book, The Marking System in Theory and Practice, that, quote, the evidence is clear that marks constitute a very real and a very strong inducement to work, that they are accepted as real and fairly exact measurements of ability or of performance. Moreover, they not infrequently are determiners of the student's career. They constitute the primary basis for election to honor societies, for the award of various academic honors, for advancement from class to class, for graduation, and may even determine in some measure the student's career after leaving the institution in which they have been assigned. Indeed, today grades play a heavy role in determining our socioeconomic futures. High school students have to submit their grades and grade point averages on applications to colleges. Grades determine which students get scholarships and funding, which ones get internships, which ones get placed in programs, and which ones can continue on to graduate study. Some jobs hiring new college graduates require students to report their GPAs or want to see their transcripts. 
There is a very real sense then in which the letter grade, which hasn't been around for all of that long, can determine someone's entire future. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>